Podcast. The Book of Romans has been called the King of the New Testament Epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. Alrighty, let's get started. We're going to pick up in Romans chapter 7, one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. Looking forward to it. We will definitely need the wisdom and the help of the Holy Spirit, so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, for this famous passage about an infamous struggle that we all know all too well, the struggle with sin, uh, doing the things that we don't want to do, and not doing the things that we do want to do. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what the Holy Spirit's trying to teach us, to encourage us to live a life of victory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you remember tug of war, right? Back in the day, maybe in PE class, uh, they probably don't allow that game anymore because somebody might get their feelings hurt if they lost. (laughs) But back in the day, uh, in gym class, it was pretty popular, picnics and so on and so forth. Uh, I've got a slide here of them. Uh, It's gone professional here. All right. You know, the guy in the middle looks like he's in a lot of pain. (laughs) He just tore something (laughs) important. (laughs) And so, yes, uh, tug of war. Very simply put, two teams of eight facing each other at the other end of a very thick rope. The whistle goes off. It's pretty easy. And everyone starts pulling for their lives. And it's a contest of strength and willpower. Two opposing forces, and not surprisingly, the side with the most strength and strategy and determination is the side that wins. Well, this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to introduce us to a concept that most of us are familiar with, the spiritual tug of war that goes on inside of our hearts, the inner battle that Christians uh, face and Christians are all too familiar with. So now if you missed the last couple Sundays, context is kind of important here. So let me get you up to speed. So we begin, Paul has told us in Romans, very helpless, hopeless, powerless sinners without God and without hope in this world. And we are sinning against the knowledge, good knowledge, that we know that we didn't get here by ourselves. There is a God 
we see him as evidence through the creation and also through our own moral conscience. We are guilty and well-deserving of God's judgment. Enter the good news. The good news is because God greatly loves us and sees us in trouble, even though we were at odds with him and enemies, Christ demonstrates God's love in this, that he lays down his life. The God-man, a perfect substitute, stand in, for you and for me, the guilty party. And instead of trying to qualify for heaven and eternal life and reconciliation with God through good deeds, which are impossible for us, he qualifies for us that he did the good deeds and then he dies as a payment and then requires simple trust. He says, I'll give you everything for nothing but simple faith. Grace of God, it's a Gift. So the question came up for the last couple chapters. Uh, if we are saved by grace and everything depends on God for our salvation, what does it matter how we live? Because God's going to forgive us. He loves us. It's all by grace. So why not an occasional sin here and there, especially when it's convenient? And the answer has come back to us. Understand what happens when you are saved. When you're saved, there's this mystical spiritual union with Christ. And so that Christ, uh, when he dies and he's buried and he's resurrected, somehow God joined us in that action 2,000 years ago and that we are new. We're raised to new life. If anybody's in Christ, they are new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we talked much about that in the last two sermons. Now, here's the problem, the problem that Romans 7 is going to address. So while it's true that the old person, the old sinful nature was dealt a deadly blow by the cross as we were united with Christ and died with Christ and were buried with Christ and raised to new life. All that is true. But there's also the fact that while sin was disconnected and disarmed, it's still kind of, as I described last week, it carries a charge. You know, like an unplugged appliance can still carry a charge that's dangerous enough to kill you. Uh, we, we use that as an example of really what's going on with our sin nature. But you know what? Miracle Max in The Princess Bride was a great theologian. No, <laughs> because he said it really well. He said, you know, let me set it up for you. Wesley, the lead, uh, had died or so it appeared. And so his friends were carrying his lifeless body into uh, Miracle Max for a checkup. <laughs> so his friends see that Miracle Max says hello to the corpse of Wesley, you know? And so the friends say, hey, listen, he's dead. He can't talk to you. And then Miracle Max, Billy Crystal says, he says, woo-hoo-hoo, look who knows so much. You know, he says, it just so happens that your friend here is mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. <laughs> and so what the Bible is teaching us is very much this concept. It is mostly dead. For all intents and purposes, Christ put that nature to death that still carries 
a charge. It is mostly debt. It is, as many of us know, slightly alive, especially when the higher self who's in charge gives way to it. Then it has power. So the sin nature has been put to death, but still very much alive. So how do we live in this paradox? We've been joined to Christ, but we're attached to the old life. Uh, We want to serve God. We want to serve sin. We've been made slaves of God, yet so often we are slaves to our own sin. We are are sinners and saints united in one body. So Romans chapter 7 describes so beautifully in this most famous passage the tension, the conflict, the tug of war, the inner battle as Christians and only Christians can relate to this passage. And every Christian relates to it. Keep that in mind as now we look at the great tug of war. We know that the law is good. It comes from God. It's spiritual. But I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that God's law, his commands, they're good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's the sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives inside me, that is, in my sinful self. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out for What I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. That's what I keep doing, he continues. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work when I want to do good. Evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself... In my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And so there you have it. Thank you for those slides. Uh, So which is it, Paul? Are we slaves to Christ, which was a good part of Romans 6? Or are we slaves to sin, which is a good part of Romans 6 and 7? Paul will ask you through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, well, which do you want it to be? Which, do you, which side do you want to win? It's both. It's either you choose. And so we're going to talk about this tension, right? Yeah, we're in a pickle of a paradox 
but there's a way to win, he'll say, and he starts to allude to that toward the end of his testimony of failure. Uh, when we pick up in Romans 8, we're going to have the strategy for victory. So, But uh, first, he wants to talk about this conflict that never goes away in the heart of a Christian. So let's break this battle down and bite-sized nuggets as we like to do for talking points in the first 14 through 7. We're going to see... I have good intentions, right? He's going to say, we have, we have good intentions, but that's not all I have. And those are the verses that you're looking at now. Coming up will be verses 18 to 20. I have many failures. It's his testimony. So the first verses that you're looking at now, he says, I have good intentions, but I don't always live them out. That's the focus. I have good intentions, but that's not all I have. And then the next paragraph is going to be, I have many failures, but that's not all I have either. And then the last paragraph is going to say, I have a Savior. I have a Savior. And uh, amen? <laughs> so we will get to that. But already, uh, we have isolated for you verses 14 through 17, which will focus on the good intentions that sin sabotages us and doesn't allow us, it hinders us from being all that we can be and doing all that we want to do as God's servant. Uh, and so we take a look at that now. Right, so... I want to say first that this passage in its entirety is really descriptive in the sense that it describes a, a default, a place that Christians who are weak and immature or uh, even mature that can lapse into and get stuck in a rut at times. It's certainly not uh, where we're supposed to live. It's where we're supposed to struggle. And so it's descriptive of a frustrating conflict. Uh, chapter 8 is prescriptive, prescriptive. It prescribes and instructs the strategy out of this kind of terrible merry-go-round and getting to a place of life and peace. And so let's dissect this dilemma before you, the heart of chapter 7. Here, this famous, infamous struggle, okay, as the cartoonist... Uh, Pogo once said, we <laughs> met the enemy, and the enemy is us, right? Why don't we say that together? We met the enemy, and the enemy is us, yes. Yeah, so let's follow along. Paul shows us where the problem lies. Now, verses uh, 14 through 17 here, great intentions. He's, he starts in verse 14 with an about face, Really, by saying in verse 14, now the law's good, the, the law's spiritual. In other words, it comes from God. Now, why does he have to have an about face? Well, he has spent verses 1 through 13 trying to jar people out of a, a mistaken notion that the law saves them. All right, so the Jews especially loved God's law. They enjoyed the fact that it was given to them, Exodus 34. They prided themselves among the nations. We know right from wrong. We know Yahweh's will. You guys don't. 
right? They loved the law, Psalm 119, the psalmist talking about the wonders and the joy of God's law, keeping commands they thought would save them. And here's the paradox, you know? So he had to say, listen, the law's not your friend. The law condemns you. The law kills you. The law says thou shalt not or die, and you do it. So you're going to die. So, so, so in fact, they, they love the law so much. To this day, Jews uh, will wear yarmulkes and put a mezuzah on their doorposts. Let me show you a picture. All right, so... These are saying, uh, a mezuzah means, uh, it's from Yiddish word, uh, European uh, Hebrew uh, for skullcap that says, I'm under the law of God and proud of it. And this says, here's a sample of the Torah in a case with the Ten Commandments on it. All right, and so they put it on their doorposts to say this is a household and a person who's under the law. And Paul says, "Yikes! You're what? You want to talk about paradox? The law says thou shalt do this or die, and you don't do it. So you're reminding yourself every time you put yourself under the law and put it up on the door that you're a dead man walking." So he's been using verses 1 through 13 to say, come on, the law is not your friend. It accuses you. It springs up and it kills you, right? Now he has to say, and he's been saying, does that mean the law is bad? Does it mean that you shouldn't obey it? Does it mean that it's not good, right, holy, Beautiful, gives radiance to our eyes. It's sweeter than honeycomb. It makes us alive. It cleanses our minds. Yeah, all of that. So now he has to reverse course, lest he give the Jews a negative feel about the law. He's trying to kind of, you know, pry it away from them as an attempt to save them. If you use the law by, and, and Gentiles have the same problem. You can go back to the verses. Thank you. Gentiles who say, of course, good people go to heaven and I'm basically a good person. They're doing the same mistake. Because if you assert that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, you're a bad person. So therefore, from your own lips, you will perish because you're not a good person. Well, I'm basically a good person. Well, let's check you out. Let's line you up not to a serial killer, but let's compare you to Christ And then we'll find out if you're good or bad, you see. So he's been saying, hey, the law, you want to say, hey, I'm a good person. I'm basically a good person, and I keep the laws, and I'm all about that. You're condemning yourself. So now he turns around, and he says, well, we know that the law comes from God, So, and God is good, and he calls it spiritual because it comes from the Holy Spirit, i.e. spiritual. That's what he means there. The law has its origin in heaven. God is good. What he says and commands is good. So he's just kind of bringing it around again. And so, and now, uh, he's saying the law brought the death sentence, but it's still good, right, and holy. So we continued now. So he's saying now the problem is not with the law people because they're like, oh, yeah, now... You know, who wants to be around the law anymore because the law springs up and says you're a loser, 
Well, it says you're a loser because you need a savior. And that was the job of the law to show you your sin and prime the pump to get you to run to Christ and receive a savior. And so he says the the problem's not with the command, uh, thou shalt not lie. The problem is with the liar and the one who wants to lie. You know, so it's not the problem with the law. So we don't have to despise or neglect the Old Testament moral laws. So he says, as for me, on one hand, we know that God's commands come from him and they're good. But me, then he says there, as for me, I'm a, it's a sharp contrast. Uh, he says uh, that I am unspiritual. The word there means fleshly. So the commandment is alive with God and goodness and pulsating. But I'm this just this carnal. The word just means like a beast, void of spirit, void of life, void of moral reasoning. I'm just a human condition apart from grace, apart from Christ. It's just a, almost like an animal. And that's really what the word means. He says, I'm an animal. Apart from God's intervention. Yes, I've been created. Yes, I have a moral spark in me somewhere, moral conscience, I should say. But apart from the saving grace and the infilling and the raising of the dead of my uh, dead heart, uh, I am just a rebel. I'm not subject to the law. I'm counter to what uh, comes from heaven. This is the idea, the opposite of what God wants is what I am. I'm the opposite. I'm not in sync, and I do not keep those commands perfectly because I'm unable to. I'm sold as a slave. In your text, you can follow along. Uh, Slave, sold as a slave there is passive. It means I didn't sell myself as a slave. Uh, I woke up to this, this understanding that, wow, God wants me to do this. I agree that this is good. I admire that, and I can't do it. So he realizes that something happened in Adam that connects him to a slavery to sin. And he says, but on the other hand, as I'm sold as a slave to sin through my connection with Adam, he says, welcome to this paradox. I'm also redeemed as a slave to God through my connection with the second Adam, who is Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so conversion adds a new nature, and that is when the conflicts begin, not end. Now, becoming a Christian solves a lot of issues, our eternal destiny, who we are, and all of this, but it doesn't solve all of our problems, as we'll see. It adds a new nature, and now there's pretty much two of me. Now, back in the 70s and early 80s, David Wilkerson, a Christian evangelist, he died in 2011, but not before he wrote the <laughs> way back in the day. The Cross and the Switchblade, he founded Teen Challenge, And he is the founding pastor of the Times Square Church in New York City. And he wrote a little booklet entitled, Two of Me. I've got a picture of that. 
And this became very famous back in the day. Let me quote from there. You can leave the picture up there. He says, I am a strange creature with two opposing minds in one body. In fact, I think I have the quote. I am a strange creature. <laughs> very good. That way you can follow along. In fact, the font's so much nicer this way. <laughs> I am a strange creature with two opposing minds in one body. Two distinct life forces in me keep trying to control my actions. There are things about myself that scare me. Yes, <laughs> I want to please God, but subtle desires surface on occasion, making me desire and lust after experiences that are contrary to my better nature and to God. I can't explain why I am such a dual person when it comes to right and wrong. The evil that I hate is always present in me. The good and moral desires are there too keeping my mind in constant turmoil. It's not an everyday, all day long battle, but the evil at times tries to overpower me. Just when I think I got my act together, things can fall apart. And once again, I can find myself doing things I really don't want to do. And anyone who can relate to that paragraph can say amen. amen. I thought so. Let the record show that every, <laughs> that every Christian in the place mouth at least, amen. So verse 15, you can go back to the verses. Thank you. So verse 15 says, I don't get me. I don't understand myself. I'm totally baffled by my own experience. I am a strange creature, two opposing minds in one body. So now he's going to explain in the following verses, 15 and so on, uh, what he meant by being sold as a slave to sin. He's saying, after my Christian conversion, I woke up and realized there's a stowaway on the vessel of my life. And the stowaway is trying to sink the ship. It's dangerous. Got somebody on there whose sole purpose is to destroy you. To offend God, to say no to God, to rebel against God, that hates God. And it's on board. Mostly dead. But if you walk by the cabin, you'll see it stirring here and there. You got that? He says, I'm perplexed by my own actions. Verse 15, on one hand, I have this earnest desire. There's the real me, right? To say the right thing, do the loving thing, be other-centered, be the perfect husband or wife, think right thoughts that are pure and clean and right, and behave with integrity and honesty. I'm going to confess I, the real me, I admire those things. I applaud those things. I agree that those things are good and come from God. I start each day with the intention to be that way and to do those things. But guess what? At the end of the day, I didn't do the good things I wanted to do that I admire. I ended up doing some of the very things that I despise. And this has brought Paul to a great 
frustrating moment, but a conclusion nonetheless. He's going to say things like this. Here's what he's saying. He's going to say, we Christians could say, you know, who likes a liar? Not me. We all say, I can't stand liars. And then you lie. He says, I don't get that. (laughs) Before I even know what's happening, my tongue is spinning this yarn, you know, a web of deception. Even though I despise liars. I prize humility and being humble. Then I catch myself all puffed up thinking I'm better than everybody in the room. I admire contentment. And then I'm driving in the car and my mind is wandering and I'm coveting what other people have. I go on Facebook and it's a covet fest. (laughs) You know what covet means? Just wanting more and more and more. Look at them, how happy they are and all of this. He says, I admire contentment. (laughs) I love peacemakers and then I make trouble. I preach self-control to others and then give way to my own lusts. Here's what one writer said about Paul, a sinner, question mark. Wow. Outward sin didn't characterize the great apostle's life, but here he admits his fierce struggle along with bouts of failure and frustration. Paul is describing here the default posture of life without a full allegiance and dependence on the Holy Spirit. Within himself, this is what he has to offer. No power to overcome the impulse of sin. And so, strange creature, what is my problem? I have sincere intentions as a believer. He says, I love God's law. So we know it's a believer. He's using present tense. All people want to say, this isn't Paul, the Christian. This is Paul before he was a Christian. Why does he say, in my my heart, I love God, and I love God's laws? Do do non-Christians say that? And he's not using past tense. He's saying, now, in fact, 1 through 13 is in past. And then he starts talking in present Why? Because God wants us to accept and acknowledge the facts of our total depravity so that we'll not hate ourselves but love grace and see our desperation for him and struggle with desperation to walk in the spirit, he says. So he is admitting here. And he comes to a conclusion, and better be careful with verse 16. He says, I've reached a conclusion about this drive to sabotage my own self. It's not the real me. It's the sin living inside me. So be careful, surface Bible readers here. Paul is not shirking personal responsibility for bad behavior because he already says, I do them. That is a concession. I do them. I do the evil I don't want to do. That's saying I'm responsible. It's me that's doing it. Uh, I will reap the painful promised consequences of doing the very thing the real me loathes. So it's not a lame excuse. You know, he's saying it's not who I am when I do those things. It's not the born again me. It's not the me that's going to reign and rule with Christ forever. It's not the me that will walk around with a crown on my head in heaven on streets of gold. This is me. This isn't the new life. This isn't the person who loves God. 
This is the old me. That's all it is, is a distinction when he says, it's not me, it's not the real me. You know when somebody has a moral failure, especially a Christian, they say, you know, that's not who I am. And every Christian says, we get that. We get that. That, sadly, everybody thinks that's who you are because you did it. And that's why you're saying, but actually, everybody, it's not who I really am. We get that. But does the press Democrat care? <laughs> no. And nobody else does. The CHP officer pulls you over drunk. This isn't who I am. <laughs> oh, buddy, that maybe I should write two tickets. <laughs> <laughs> This is for who you're not. And this is for who you are that let this idiot take control of the vehicle. That wasn't in my notes. It's not a lame excuse. It's a way to say there's a distinct, different identity, entity, Inside of this body, we share the same apartment. Somebody who's going to heaven and loves God is bunking with a dead man who hates everything about him and is, resents the day that this new nature came on board and is going to do everything to your dying breath. Not in my notes as well, but since... But let me tell you about it. I went to visit somebody who was having their last breath. This is 20 years ago in a city far away. And they're on their deathbed. They died not very long after that, but they were cognizant. And a beautiful nurse walked by. And this dude craned his neck, his dying breath followed that woman and checked her out till I was standing there like, wow. <laughs> Sin will not let go to the last second and then we are removed from its presence and its power and its penalty forever. It will be impossible in a body like Christ, glorious as it is, to ever sin again but this is it he says so now he wants to continue on with a slightly different emphasis let's look at that 18 through 20 kind of a recapitulation for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful self in fact I've got a little paraphrase you follow along verse 18 I know that nothing good lives down there that is in my sinful nature my sinful self I want to do what's right but can't Verse 19, I want to do what is good, but I don't always. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Verse 20, but if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It is the sin living in me that does it. So I'm <laughs> the nature. I am changed. I, the real Paul, loves God and wants to obey, and I've got this other beast uh, living in me. So the first focus was really on, I've got good intentions, but I can't seem to carry them out. And now he's going to say, and I really blow it sometime, and I want to just give you my testimony of failure. So this is really 
very shocking to read about Paul. Those words are unbelievable. Yes, Peter we get. Peter, we think, yeah, you know, he's kind of boom, 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 boom. Yeah, but, you know, uh, Paul, we just can't believe those words are coming out of Paul's mouth. So let's... uh, Look into it. He says, I really blow it sometimes, even though I love the Lord and I'm going to heaven and I'm brand new inside. Verse 18, I have the desire to do what is good. I just can't seem to carry it out. Uh, A Roman poet in the first century said this, I see and approve the better things, but I pursue the worst. Wow. And so, uh, yes, Paul seems to be very honest and open and vulnerable with us. He admits he experiences moral defeat is a part. Listen, moral defeat is a part, a sad part, a sad reality of every Christian testimony. Oh, we don't like to admit it. I went to a church once, oh, 30 years ago. I was actually employed there. Almost had a nervous breakdown. I seriously almost had a nervous breakdown. And I'll tell you why. Everybody had the victory. Everybody was praising the Lord. How are you doing, brother? Oh, I got the victory. Always, always, you know? And I started to think, well, what a loser I am. You know, I never have the victory, or so it seems. You know, I seldom have the victory. I mean, the, the rope is going like this. Help me, you know? But I couldn't open up. I couldn't talk to people. I couldn't. Nobody opened up because every, because. Christians are holy all the time, and Christians are, oh, yeah, it's just bad theology. It's an uncomfortableness. First, it it stems from poor theological training because you think you're saved by being good. So you're uncomfortable with admitting you're not and that you struggle with it. So we keep on our Christian mass and we keep telling everybody praising him and all of that stuff. And we are praising him and all of that. I think you get what I'm talking about. It's very, uh, it, it, it is welcome. I love seeing Paul say, you know what? I have a problem with sin. Now, the reason he's talking about it like this, this two steps forward and three steps back is to encourage us uh, not to get comfortable with it because that's a, your heart is so wicked that it'll, it'll look to this and say, see, it's okay, even Paul. So go ahead. How could you get comfortable with poison ivy, uh, wasp stings, knocking in a hole in the side of your boat or inviting death and defeat into your life, sabotaging your own life? Really, you're gonna get comfortable with tearing down your own house? Proverbs 14.1, the wise woman builds her house with her own hands. The foolish one tears down her house. Well, what happened? A hurricane came. Whoa, what happened? Your whole house is destroyed. Did, did bad guys come in and wreck it? Or did, well, what happened? A flood. Uh, Florence come by, the hurricane. No, 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 no. I did it. I did it myself. That's Proverbs 14.1 that the foolish person will destroy their own lives with their own hands and how many marriages I've counseled and I'm watching them do it themselves. They don't need any help. This is what he's talking about. It's unpleasant to talk about and acknowledge our moral vulnerability and experience with failure, but there's much wisdom in doing so and that's why he's done it. 
Alexander White, I, another long extended quote, I think I sent it over, <laughs> Scottish preacher from the 1800s, uh, early 1900s, here's what he said about being honest, that we fail. Gospel writers have been, this is 1895, gospel writers have been afraid to speak out about the whole truth about their own struggles. The truthful person must admit and confess there has not been another with so weak and evil a heart as mine. No evil, like, no evil life quite like mine. No sinner beset with as many temptations and trials as me. He must admit to his own experience of inner sinfulness that his sin is malignant, that sin at times still has dom domination, over him, dominion over him, that indescribable evil lurks in his heart, that all this goes on in his own heart. This is the everyday agony of every man among us whose eyes are open to his own heart. Thank you for that. This is such a freeing truth, and it has really four advantages. Number one, admitting that you are a moral failure without God's intervention doesn't cause despair, but gives us hope. So I look at that and Paul, like all the Bible heroes, uh, knew moral defeat. My experience is normative Christian living. And I'm not encouraged to continue something that will destroy me and my family, but it's comforting to know my struggle and sometimes failure, morally speaking, is a normal part of being a born-again Christian. Number two, this failure, this testimony is here because it inspires us to fight the good fight. It shows you that even in the life of the Apostle Paul, sin is so pervasive, so powerful. Admitting this inspires us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and gets you ready for chapter 8. Uh, number three, admitting our, our total depravity encourages humility. Oh, man. Save me from the Christian who thinks they're all that. Save me from them because they are dangerous. Oh, I'm all that. Oh, I don't, I don't struggle with that. Oh, I've got it all together. I tithe my 10% down to the penny. You know, I do this, I do that. We don't have struggles like that. Those are... <laughs> Somehow that was fitting. <laughs> So, those kind of people who are more victorious than the Apostle Paul, this guy is going to have merciful heart for people whose marriages dissolve, who have shameful things happen. This person says, I know how that feels. 
So I'm going to receive you as a fellow failure at times. Because I have failed just like you. That's why it's in there. And lastly, there's an increased devotion. <laughs> you know, there I had a friend who was making fun of the song, uh, Breathe, you know, I'm desperate for you. And it says, I'm desperate for you. You know, I'm desperate, I'm desperate. And he was making fun of that. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, oh, God is going to hear that, bro. <laughs> He's going to help you appreciate the lyrics of that word, that song. <laughs> and sure enough, oh, sure enough. Now, I think 25 years have passed. Oh, he likes the song now. He likes the song now. Okay, so I think we get it. Paul's confession here is telling you, watch out, watch out. Not join me. <laughs> let's fight together. Let's find Romans 8 together. Let's get out of this madhouse, <laughs> right? That's what he's saying, you know. Good intentions are not enough. That's what he's saying. Sin will cut you off at your knees. Did Noah wake up in the morning and plan on passing out drunk in his tent for his boys to have to cover him up because he didn't have the sense to put on his pajamas? Did he start that way? Did David wake up deciding to ruin his life to become an adulterer, murderer? No. Did Samson plan to ruin his life because he couldn't get his lust under control? These are people you'll see in heaven. And there's a part of what was supposed to be there in that life, a reward that is going to be missing. What's wrong with us? Answer, if you're not careful, well-intentioned or not, sin is lurking. You must master it or it will master you. Let's finish up with some encouraging words. We get to Jesus here, thankfully. All right, so here's the paraphrase. Follow me, verse 21. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, evil is never very far away. It's right there together. I do love God's laws with all my heart, verse 22, verse 23, but I can detect another power within me that's at war with my mind. The power enslaves me every chance it gets, verse 24. Oh, what a wretched, miserable, morally bankrupt person I am. Who's going to rescue me from me? <laughs> well, verse 25, thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. <laughs> so you see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. So here's a glimpse of hope that's coming up in Romans 8. It's tied, of course, to our Savior and the power tool of the Holy Spirit who's going to show us a way to live victorious in that beautiful chapter. So he's saying, yeah, good intentions, they're great but it's not enough. You love God, that's nice, his word and all of that. 
but there's a one who sabotages. And uh, if you don't take care of that, you don't live right, you don't walk right, uh, you're going to be in a, a lot of trouble from your indwelling sin. But cheer up, thank God, it's only part of your story. This is only part of the story. It is a part of the story, but it's not the whole story. Amen? Amen? That's nice. Jesus rescues us, he says. You have a Savior. Point number three. He rescues us from this sick, psychotic cycle, spiritually speaking, removes condemnation, supplies his spirit and power to overcome. And he's the one, he says, I guarantee to carry you from conversion all the way to the throne to stand there faultless and blameless before God. He says, that is guaranteed, and I'm going to do it through the valley and through the mountaintops, whatever it takes. So the, the purpose of this stark reality here is to be forewarned is to be what? Forearmed, right? So Christian, he's saying, listen, number one, no Disneyland mentality. Oh, my word, I run into a lot of Christians with kind of a... A unrealistic expectation or understanding of what the Christian life is all about. You know, God waves a magic wand at conversion and sprinkles uh, God dust on everything, and everything's okay, but becoming a Christian solves your worst problem, your destiny and appointment with judgment and wrath and hell, but it doesn't solve all of your problems. In fact, it creates a lot of new ones. You didn't have this struggle before, did you? I didn't. I had one nature. I was 18, 19 years old, one nature. And I did what the one nature wanted. We were happy. (laughs) Until I realized that I really wasn't happy. It was a false, deceptive uh, joy. So becoming a Christian adds that dynamic. I'm a new creation working out a new life within the confines of an old life. I have a new nature inside a fallen nature. I'm living out my holy life with God's holy people in an unholy world. So Paul is saying, be a realist. Yes, Paul says, I get up, I read my Bible, I worship the Lord, I spend some time in prayer, uh, and then I brace myself for this battle. It's like places, everybody. Eight on this side, eight on this side. One, two, three, go. And he says, 24-7, detention. Every conversation, every moment in the car, everywhere I go, when I'm alone, when I'm with people, when I'm at work, when I'm on vacation. Ladies and gentlemen, your success as a Christian can turn on a dime. That's the reason it's here. Because you have to walk in the spirit all the time. If you don't, the rope is going to go to the sinful nature who wants to destroy. So he says, I get up in the morning. I know it could go like this. He says, listen, I start out with this great thought in my heart. I'm going to do good. And then right there, right there is, I'm going to do bad. Right there. And how fast it can go. You're sharing the gospel. Suddenly you're arguing. What do you think, you know? You know what it says in the Bible? A fool says in his heart, there is no God. And you're a fool. In fact, you're an idiot, you know? All of this, you know? 
You started out good, but what's right there? What's right there? Hey, sharing the gospel out of love for your soul, you idiot, you know? <laughs> and he says, it just goes right there. You know, you just start out good, you know? Oh, you're doing a good deed. You're doing a good deed. You're doing a good deed. And then you hope someone sees you. Oh, the whole thing implodes on itself. I always say, do the good deed anyway. Confess your sin. But a good deed is a good deed, except when we ruin it because we win. <laughs> or you're on a date with your wife or your, your husband. How fast? You start out all romantic. Oh, it's going to be fun at date night. And then one of them says, where do you want to go? And the other one says, oh, I don't care. You decide. <laughs> and and so, the, so, so the one goes, you know, okay, let's go to Sea Noodle. And the other one goes, oh, this is kind of salty, too salty, you know. <laughs> and then, then the other one says, well, okay, how about that Himalayan place? You like that, you know? Well, the Himalayan place closed. All right, <clears throat> so how about some sushi? How about sushi? You know, I'm in the mood for something hot, you know, <laughs> something hot. And then it's like, oh, I hate when you do this, right? Do what? You know, you first I ask you, you know, do you care? You say you don't care. And then I throw out three, four things. And then you say, and then it says, I do not. You do, do. Yes, you do. <laughs> you do it all the time. That's fine. You know what? We're going home. We're going to eat peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> it's right there. Oh, good romance. I love you, sugar muffin. You know? And then just one little thing. Evil's right there, ready to chop everybody's heads off, right? He says, I don't want to live like that. And, and neither do you. You do a good deed. You hope someone sees it. You give a compliment so that you'll get one back. You know? You, you, uh, you're clean and sober for 25 years. And boom, just it's Christmas, why not? What, 25 years? 25 years, oh, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And he says, it's right there, give me the chance, buddy. Come on, come on, let's do it. I'm with you, I'm for you, come on. 25 years, you know, just one. I'm here for you, let's do this. Be careful. So he says, what a wretch. I hope you can say that. You know, I did a memorial service uh, out in Occidental once, and they changed the hymn. I had no control over this. They changed the hymn to uh, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, Who Saves Someone Like Me. Oh, we don't like to call ourselves wretches, but Paul says, I am a wretch. And until you know and are comfortable Get comfortable with the truth. You are a wretch. I am a wretch. I'm a worse wretch than anybody in this room. In myself. And you will never heal your marriage. You will never grow as in Christ. You'll never be of help to anybody until you fully believe and embrace the wretchedness of your own sinful self. That's the foundation. Then we build on that. We love grace. We love Jesus. We're humble. We're desperate for him. And all good things come from one truth. I'm a loser without God. I need him. Amen? Amen. Shall we pray? Yes. Let's do it.
Father God, we thank you for your great love. Thank you, God, that we are certainly not losers in your sight anymore because we hooked up with the winner and we are one with that winner. We are wed to God's son. And you say the same thing of us as you say of your son. This is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And so thank you for Romans chapter eight and the strategy to victory. And thank you for the hard truth that also has a strange way of comforting us and inspiring us to live for you instead of ourselves in Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.